Oh, oh, hello there. It's Marshall here. This holiday season, Lindsay and I are taking a family vacation down on the farm. We'll be back with brand new episodes and some farm fresh vegetables on January 11th. But in the meantime, we hope you enjoy this awesome fun pack of some of our favorite Tumble episodes about the incredible animal kingdom. From dogs and cats to sea stars and whale sharks, we've got all of our favorite episodes about animals ready for you right here. So go ahead and roll up your sleeves and get to work on this two-hour fun pack, some of our best animal episodes. Now I gotta go uh, tend some of these sheep before they get out. Hey, hey, that's my hat! Hey, hey! I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we're talking about the biggest fish in the sea, the whale shark. So come with us to the Gulf of Mexico. That's where we'll meet a scientist who helped discover the largest whale shark party that anyone has ever seen. Hashtag squad goals. We know that whale sharks are the biggest fish in the world. They're as large as a bus, but they're confusing. Are they a whale or are they a shark? Are there whales called shark whales or is that just not a thing? We asked our listeners to help us understand whale sharks. A whale shark looks very large. A whale shark looks similar to a shark and a whale. They look like these huge whales, but they're actually sharks and they have these white spots on them. I don't exactly know why, and they're kind of like a brown kind of color. The spots on the body are unique, like fingerprints are to humans. A whale shark eats krill. They eat krill plankton. That's all I know. Whale sharks eat plankton and fish eggs. They are very gentle. They're filter feeders. The teeth are very small and harmless to humans. That was Jalen High, Owen Sanders, and Julia Morgan. Thanks for answering our questions and sending in your recordings. Now, let's go to Mexico. Vamanos! So can you tell me a little bit about where we are right now? Yes, this is Marina Hacienda del Mar. We are in Puerto Juarez. I'm from here with the park to look for, for whale sharks. That's Rafael de la Para a marine biologist who's leading me across the docks of a marina in Cancun, Mexico. And well, this is the Grampus. That's my boat. Cancun is at the tip of the Yucatan Peninsula. That's the part of Mexico that sticks out into the Caribbean. It sort of looks like the postcard version of a beach paradise with pelicans flying overhead, palm trees blowing in the wind, and white sands fading into azure ocean. Got a little bit poetic about that. (laughs) But every summer, whale sharks show up to feed in those clear waters not too far from the marina. They're migrating animals, which means that they spend winter in another location. Since we couldn't actually hang out with the whale sharks, I decided to do the next best thing. Interview a scientist who studies whale sharks. I don't know if you want to jump or, or stay just right here. I think sitting in the boat would be great. It might cut down on the wind. Okay, let me jump first and then I will help you. 
The Grampus is a boat built for fishing. Raphael was actually a fisherman before he became a scientist. But sometimes his two passions collide. At least that's what happened when he found himself in the middle of a squad of whale sharks. We were doing sport fishing and out of a sudden we were surrounded by uh, several hundreds of them, like 300 or 400 of them. Wait. He goes out to fish and suddenly he's surrounded by gigantic sharks? Actually, we got stuck in the middle. Rafael was about to pull in a big fish the moment the shark showed up. We were having on, on the line a, a mahi-mahi, a, a dolphin fish, a dorado, and uh, it was really hard to, to land that. Actually, we had to cut the line because we were not able to move. Were you annoyed that you had to let go of the fish that you were about to pull in? Yes, that, that time, long time ago, when we were fishing, yes, we were very annoyed. So when you went out to fish, did you have any idea that there were going to be whale sharks there? No, not at all. Uh, well, we've been watching from time to time on the way back after fishing. We were watching one or two. Rafael would even stop his boat sometimes to jump into the water and swim with the whale sharks. Whoa, but that's cool. Yeah, but this giant group of sharks was like nothing he'd ever seen before. Well, so what's going on? Why, why was that happening? Every summer, this big population of whale sharks gathers off the coast of Cancun. It's kind of like their summer home. So, but what do they do there? They, like, kick off their work shoes, trade their suits for some board shorts? Well, they're there to eat. It's almost like an all-you-can-eat buffet of phytoplankton and tuna eggs just appears in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> and when it's gone, they move on to their next spot. Guess this all-you-can-eat buffet is over. It's amazing to discover that the whale sharks have the ability to know exactly where the food is and be there at the right time, the right place. So it's like the whale sharks know where the hot restaurant is. It's the restaurant that's been hot forever. Because fishermen had stories of seeing these gatherings for generations back. That's, that's the thing I always hate about the whale shark restaurants. There's just always a line out the door. <laughs> After Raphael got over losing his big fish, he got super curious about whale sharks. And here's the thing. Even though they're big and beautiful creatures, scientists know very little about them. Whale sharks have been studied, uh, but recently, about uh, 15 years. So what we knew about them when we began to study them was very little. Almost every single question that is being asked, you can convert that into a new project. Rafael had a lot of questions. One of the most important questions should be how many of them are coming. So he decided to count them. So that's really easy. He just has to set up a table at the door to the whale shark restaurant and count the sharks as they come in. It's not exactly like that. It's like, excuse me, do you have a reservation? <laughs> <laughs> Raphael's first counting technique was attaching a tag with a number to each shark. The tags are made out of heavy-duty plastic. We need to use a tag in order to not uh, repeat the same shark that we've been working with. So you would know which one is which and if you'd counted it before. Right, but putting a tag on a shark is like trying to give a shark a piercing. Their skin is a lot thicker than ours, but some people thought it was mean to the sharks. I think piercings are just something that would help them look more fashionable. 
but uh, that has been gone now in, in clear waters. We are using photography. So he's snapping photos of whale sharks? That's cool. It's cool and also more complicated than that. Raphael and other scientists get into a small airplane and fly up to do what's called an aerial survey. Oh, so they're taking photographs from above. Right, and in the photographs, the whale sharks look like submarines about to surface. Whoa. So do they just develop the pictures and then count, like, oh, there's a shark? One, two, three sharks. All right, all done. Not really. They use scientific models. That have been adopted from astronomers. Astronomers use these models to count stars in photographs taken by telescopes. And marine biologists borrowed it to help count whale sharks in the ocean. Whoa. So you can count sharks just like you can count stars? Well, this method helps them keep the sharks straight as they count. Because their patterns are unique to every uh, individual and is what we call the fingerprint. Oh, that's what our listener Owen said. Their dots are like fingerprints. So how many whale sharks did they count? From the earth, we've been able to count up to 400 of them. 400 sharks just in one place? Like, what does that even look like? It looks like the sea is just crawling with sharks. Raphael published a scientific paper with the title, An Unprecedented Aggregation of Whale Sharks. So that means no one had ever seen a gathering that big. But setting a whale shark record, why was that important to know? Well, the size of the gathering helps scientists understand whether whale sharks have a healthy population, whether they're gaining or losing numbers, or holding steady. So, like, if only 30 sharks turn up one year, they'll know something's wrong. Right. And then they can search for clues about what's happening and how they might be able to help the whale sharks. So are whale sharks an endangered species? Actually, uh, last year it was considered as a vulnerable or threatened species. Now it's, it's endangered species. So we should do what we can to help keep these whale shark parties raging. Like, turn up the music, put out some salsa. Whale shark parties sound like a lot of fun. The food is free. <laughs> <laughs> and because whale sharks are so friendly to humans, lots of people decide to join in. Raphael actually takes people on his boat to swim with the whale sharks. I really want to do that. Me too. When they first jump in the water and watch this huge animal with the, the big mouth coming towards them, you cannot imagine how many different kinds of uh, screams could come out from the snorkel. Raphael told me that his hope is that this amazing experience, swimming with the sharks, inspires people to care about the environment and even contribute to research. Every single person jumping in the water with a whale shark, if they have a camera or a, a cell phone that can take a, an image, we're encouraging them to submit that to whalesharks.org. Since every whale shark has a different pattern, researchers like Raphael can tell when a shark in Cancun shows up in Belize through a website called whalesharks.org. So that gives them even more information about their migration. Yeah, and the whale sharks tell us something too. Because if you sign up at the website, you can actually get emails from a whale shark. 
every single time that we spot the same animal again, we will let you know by an email. So it's, it's something quite rewarding when you start receiving emails from the sharks. That uh, Wait, you get emails from sharks? <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, actually. <laughs> you can say so. I really wouldn't mind getting emails from a whale shark. I kind of wonder what they'd have to say. Dear Marshall, Plankton, really good today. See you tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) You can actually adopt and name a whale shark that will tweet to you on Twitter. Not only email you, but tweet to you on Twitter. Hashtag shark life. (laughs) Hashtag living that shark life. Your donation will help researchers buy a satellite tag that can track your whale shark. Say your whale shark is named, I don't know, Lindsay. So you can say, okay, Lindsay, now it's it's in Belize, and uh, next year it's going to be in Honduras, and six months later it's it's, uh, tweeting from Mexico. Okay, so you went to Cancun and named a whale shark after yourself. (laughs) (laughs) And now you're friends on Twitter. Yeah, it it was weird, but I think Lindsay's a great name for a whale shark, okay? (laughs) I guess you could do worse, like Mortimer. (laughs) Actually, Mortimer is kind of a good name for a whale shark. It's a wonderful name for a whale shark. (laughs) There are almost 8,000 whale sharks available for adoption on whaleshark.org. And I'm extremely excited to say that we have decided to adopt one. Right now it's going by the name MXA130, and we need your help to give it a real name. Send in your suggestions for what we should name our whale shark at tumblepodcast at gmail.com. Then, if you're a member of our Patreon, you can vote on your favorite. You can also adopt and name your own whale shark. Visit our blog at tumblepodcast.org for all the details and links, and also to find out how you can take a trip with Raphael to swim with whale sharks. Thanks to Rafael de la Parra, director of the organization Cho Ajawil, which means blue realm in the Mayan language. Don't forget, we have educational materials to go along with this episode on Patreon. Have you reviewed Tumble on iTunes yet? Not yet? Okay, so next time you're in front of a computer, make sure that you leave us a review. It really helps other people discover us. Andrea Gonzalez is our intern. Sarah Lentz is our associate producer. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I wrote and produced this show. And I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I wrote the music. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for more stories of science discovery. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we're climbing up the family tree to find our primate relatives. Scientists are using the fossil record to uncover family mysteries because we can't find them on Ancestry.com. Our listener Elena wrote in and wants to know who were the first primates and how long ago did they live? Were they our great-great-great-grandparents? 
Unfortunately, we couldn't get in touch with Elena by email after she sent in this amazing question. But Elena, this is for you. For you, I took a field trip to a place that's chock full of fossils. I'm Lindsay. Nice to meet nice you, to Lindsay. Meet you. Come on in. This is Chris Kirk is a professor of anthropology at the University of Texas, Austin, who studies ancient primates. He's promised to answer Elena's question, but first, he's showing me around the vertebrate paleontology lab. Oh, so that means that they study fossils of animals with spines. Crabs and insects and squishy things apply elsewhere. <laughs> exactly. This lab is a massive storehouse of fossils that have been discovered over the past hundred years or so. And so you can see we have rows and rows of steel cases in the collections area. And if I open one of them up, what you can see are many, many drawers. And within these drawers are many, many fossils. Let me just pull one out for you. The cases are like filing cabinets that you'll have to use a stepladder to reach the top of. But the things they hold are small, delicate, and mind-blowingly old. Here is a single tooth and a little bit of jaw from a deer-like animal that lived about 42 million years ago. Wow. And These just look like pebbles. Like, they're just tiny little fragments. You might be able to recognize this one a little bit better. This is a little teeny lower jaw with a single tooth in it. Unfortunately, that tooth is so busted up, I can't quite tell what it is. <laughs> Somehow, I'm not too surprised that a tooth that's 42 million years old is pretty busted up. I know mine are 36, and they're not in the best condition. <laughs> well, it's very rare to find fossils that old in perfect condition. Paleontologists and anthropologists like Chris are more likely to find fragments of bone than a perfect skeleton. It's like they have to find these tiny puzzle pieces from all around the world, and they don't know what the picture is on the box. Yes, but the puzzle is the evolution of primates, the group all of us humans are a part of. Primates is our group that uh, includes monkeys, apes, humans, lemurs, bush babies, tarsiers, and things like that. Finding fossils is just the beginning of a long process of discovery. We spend you know, hours and hours and hours and hours in the field collecting fossils. Then we have to sort through what we collect. We have to prepare it. That means we have to fix anything that's broken. In the lab, Chris and his team carefully clean the fossils. So that's not what paleontologists are doing in the movies. Like, where's all the swinging from vines and uh, avoiding poison darts? Yeah, I think the director cuts those scenes <laughs> of the painstaking time in the lab. Uh, for every hour we have a crew in the field, there may be 10, there may be 100 hours here in the lab working with those materials, getting them ready to study. But what I'm about to show you are two of the absolute gems of the collection. Amazing. Let's go see that. Chris takes me to a special drawer, apart from the huge steel cases. I'm pulling out uh, a few of our fossil primates uh, to show you. He pulls out two cardboard boxes, so small and light he can hold them in his fingers. Yeah, or they look like a jewel box, like you would have some earrings in there. Yeah, one of them's even been spray-painted bronze. But I, I open it up, and inside each of these 
we have the skull of a fossil primate. When he opens the box, it's like we're looking into the sarcophagus of a mummy. The skulls are both resting in a custom mold. Unlike what I'd seen earlier, they're in really good condition. You can see these beautiful little teeth preserved like little jewels. The specimens have names based on their genus, Runia and Margarita. When Chris lifts them out, it scares me how delicate they are. And can we just say, like, these are tiny little skulls. You can hold them between your forefinger and thumb. Would you believe it if I told you that these are giant honking primates? No. Wait, so when did these giant honking primates live? 38 million years ago, during a time period called the Eocene, when Texas was a tropical forest. I wonder if it was as hot then as it is now. (laughs) Most of what I find uh, in the Eocene of West Texas is really small, you know, about the size of a rat. Uh, I have a geologist friend who teases me that I like to go look for monkey rats. Chris didn't find these particular monkey rats himself. They were discovered back in the 1960s and 70s. If the animals look like rats, how do we know that they're primates and not just, you know, rats? One of the most recognizable things that makes a primate a primate, anybody can see this at the zoo, is all primates have forward-facing eyes. You know, when Runia lived 38 million years ago, here's a fossil primate that had forward-facing eyes, just like you and me and all other primates that are alive today. I'm still getting over it that this thing right in front of us is 38 million years old. Right, 38 million years old, that's, that's pretty old, but if you consider that uh, the earliest primates in the fossil record, uh, it's, a, it's a fossil genus called Teardina that's about 56 million years old. Wait, so Rooney and Margarita aren't the oldest primates? No, far from it. They're 20 million years younger than the oldest known primate, a species that was as small as a mouse with big round eyes and a long tail. Sounds really cute. And that is going to be the earliest definite primate in the fossil record. So that is the answer to Elena's question. I'm going to go get that critter into Ancestry.com, and it will be everyone's oldest relative. Great-grandpa monkey rat. (laughs) (laughs) Great, 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 great. Like a lot of greats, like a couple million of them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I know, but not exactly. What Chris said is that it's the earliest definite primate in the fossil record. That means it's the oldest primate that scientists know about. Oh, I see. So there could be older primates. It's just we haven't found them yet. Right. And the question of who were the first primates and when and how they evolved is a mystery that involves the extinction of dinosaurs. The answer, based on genetic estimates, is probably about the same time most of the non-avian, or all non-avian dinosaurs were killed in a mass extinction uh, called the Chicxulub impact. This was about 66 million years ago. The first primates appeared on the scene right after the dinosaurs were killed? Sometime right around then. So an asteroid hit the Earth, wiped nearly everything off the planet, and then our family pops up. That is kind of suspicious. How do we know the monkeys aren't responsible for the asteroid? (laughs) Well, scientists don't deal in conspiracy theories about monkeys and space (laughs) objects. 
They're actually dealing with genetic evidence. They get that evidence by diving into the genes of primates that are alive today and comparing them to mammals that are closely related to us. And they're looking for that moment when primates branched off the family tree from other mammals. So they're looking for our common ancestor, our mutual great, 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 etc. Grandparent. Pick any two organisms on this planet, they share a common ancestor at some point in the past. It doesn't matter if it's humans and chimpanzees or humans and bananas, right? We've, all, we've There's always a common ancestor at some point in the past. With the help of fossils, scientists can make a rough estimate of when that common ancestor might have lived and when primates became primates. And the best bet is that that common ancestor of the two groups lived right around 66 million years ago, maybe a little bit older than the impact that killed uh, most of the dinosaurs, or maybe a little bit younger than the impact that killed most of the dinosaurs. Whoa, so what does he mean that the best bet is that they lived 66 million years ago? Well, scientists do know that around the time of the impact that killed most of the dinosaurs, mammals started to go crazy diversifying. Oh, like, you know, now we have rodents, we got bears, we got a mastodon, some mammoths, those giant sloth things, 90-foot-tall kangaroos. But scientists just don't know when primates branched off from mammals into our own separate group. And it's 56 million years ago, 10 million years after that mass extinction event, that we actually pick them up in the fossil record. The fossil record means the fossils that we've already found. It's not just like, you know, a book where we write them down. Exactly. So Chris is saying that there's 10 million years of primate evolution that we know nothing about that some future paleontologist might uncover. And if any of you future paleontologists are listening right now and you in the deserts of West Texas discover an adorable little monkey rat, just think about maybe naming it after me. Like maybe Marshallicus monkey raticus. <laughs> All right. So to answer Elena's question, the oldest primate that we know of is 56 million years old. But we could have a much, much, much older ancestor that we don't know yet. But could we say whatever it is, that it is our great, 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 like a lot of greats grandfather? We can't exactly say that scientifically, but we are very, very distantly related. The bigger picture is how that animal led to all of primates. It's one piece of the overall puzzle of understanding the evolution of primates as a group. Oh, wow. Well, I never thought about the extinction of dinosaurs and their relationship to us as humans. I mean, I still wish that there were dinosaurs that roamed the earth, but I guess that we can't have both. Oh, there are plenty of dinosaurs. I mean, yes, they're birds, they're birds, but um, the, the really big ones that we could maybe ride. <laughs> Yeah, could they have been domesticated? Uh, that, that's, that's tough to say. Um, you might try putting a saddle on an ostrich. I have tried that. I can't say that I recommend it as like an efficient way to get around. Ostriches don't really have backs, so it's hard to like sit on them. And they run really fast away from you. <laughs> <laughs> they do. And also like they have these like velociraptor claws on their feet that they will kick you with. Living dinosaurs! <laughs> they are! They're terrifying. Well, maybe it's more realistic to imagine our 
tiny primate ancestors hanging out with dinosaurs. You think tiny monkey rats rode ostriches? <laughs> oh my gosh, this ostrich is running really fast, guys. I think it was more like an unlikely friendship with a T-Rex. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, this one's friendly. <laughs> Fossil hunting isn't just for paleontologists in distant lands. Chris goes fossil hunting with his seven-year-old son near their home. What's the coolest thing that your son has found? Oh my gosh, he picked up a jaw, a fossil jaw of a bison uh, eroding out of a creek bank. So we'd love to challenge you to go looking for fossils. We'll have resources on our website to help you get started. If you find something, or even if you don't, and you just find some green slime, send us a photo. We want to see it. Check out our blog at tumblepodcast.com and get your boots on. Thanks to Elena Deutsch for asking the question. Elena, if you're listening, have your parents write in and let us know that you heard it. Thanks to Chris Kirk, professor of anthropology at the University of Texas at Austin. We have photos of my visit to the vertebrate paleontology lab, so you can get a good idea of how massive it is. And you'll see how tiny Runia and Margarita are in comparison to a gigantic elephant skull. Check it out on our blog. We also want your questions. Please email us at tumblepodcast at gmail.com or use our contact form on our website, tumblepodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us in the newly renamed Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. It really helps other people discover the show. Our intern is Andrea Gonzalez. Sarah Lentz is our associate producer. I'm Lindsay, and I wrote and produced this show. And I'm Marshall, and I made the music. Thanks so much for listening, and join us next time for more stories of science discovery. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today we're headed to the Bat Cave. Wait, you mean the place where Batman and Robin hang out waiting for calls about crimes in Gotham City? No, it's way cooler than that. We're going on a field trip to the biggest bat colony in the entire world, where we'll meet a bat biologist and find out how bats learn to be bats. One morning this summer, I got up to watch the sun rise on an old ranch outside of San Antonio, Texas. But there was one element of the sunrise you can't see or hear anywhere else in the world. That sound is wind passing over millions of bat wings. So this is the beginning of when the bats start to rain down in the morning. That's real-life batwoman slash bat biologist Jessica Dreyer. I met her around 6 a.m. near the entrance to Bracken Cave, which is home to 15 million Mexican free-tailed bats. Wait, 15 million bats? Yeah, it's the largest concentration of mammals on the planet. 
when you are standing by the cave and you look up into the sky, pretty much as far as you can see upwards, you'll just see these little dots appear out of the sky and they'll just drop straight down. And they've been clocked at about 40 miles an hour dropping into the cave. Uh, and so, I mean, literally thousands of bats will be raining down over you coming back into the cave. And it is one of the most cool, otherworldly experiences you'll ever have. It was like being in some sort of secret bat world. But what made it even more special was that this huge cloud of bats was made up only of mothers and their babies. Whoa, it's a big mom's group. (laughs) (laughs) So we're approaching that point right now where the sun is starting to rise and more bats are starting to come in from a night of feeding. Are we going to get pooped on? Yeah, yeah. If you're standing close enough to the cave, yes, you will get some rain, some urine rain, and some poop landing on your head. (laughs) I hope you brought your bat raincoat, or should I say poop coat. I actually don't have one. (laughs) This is so incredibly amazing. Where else can you see this kind of thing? Not many places in the world, and... You know, it doesn't seem to matter how many times you've seen it. It always blows your mind. Jessica's seen it a lot. All summer, she's been camping outside the cave. And every night, she's up between 2 a.m. and 9 a.m. catching bats. And that's what I've come to see. Wait, wait, catching bats? Just like, like grabbing them out of the air? Like, what? how and why? Let's talk about why first. The point of this whole project that I'm working on is to figure out what the transition looks like when a baby bat goes from drinking only its mother's milk to learning how to catch its own bugs and then finally feeding itself entirely on bugs that it catches itself. In other words, she's trying to figure out how bat babies get weaned from their mommies. Well, that's something we do as human babies, except, you know, we don't start eating bugs. It's usually fruit or something. Sometimes (laughs) avocado. (laughs) Yeah, but so while this is a delightful time for humans to spread, you know, food all over their faces, this is actually one of the most difficult times in a young bat's life. So you're a young bat. You're still growing. Um, You're trying to figure out how to fly, how to echolocate, how to catch bugs. All of this is happening at the same time, and your milk supplies that you're getting fed are decreasing. And so you are expending a ton of energy trying to learn how to be a bat, and the energy that's coming in is decreasing. So Jessica's goal is to figure out how that process actually works. And to do that, she has to catch a lot of bats. So we're approaching the mouth of the cave right now. It's a quick hike from the viewing area where I met Jessica to the bat-catching spot. And we really just stand right in front of the, the opening of the cave, right in the middle, because the bats, when they're dropping down into the cave uh, from the sky, they sort of aim for the, the middle top of the cave. And so that's where the most bats are, and it gives us our best chance of catching them. So I'm with my technician. His name is Harry. and He has the butterfly net, and so he's just going to go ahead and stick the butterfly net straight up into the air, and he doesn't even have to move it. 
Wait, they, they catch bats with a butterfly net? Like there's not a special bat net? For the bats, it's just this circle floating in the air and they fly right into it. <laughs> he's already caught a bat and it's been about a split second that he's had the net in the air. So he just reaches in with his hand uh, and he's wearing a, a baseball glove or a golf glove. Uh, it's just a thin leather glove to protect himself from bat bites. And you might have heard that on the mic. He just dropped the bat into one of the little paper bags that I'm holding open for him. And so I fold the paper bag over, I close it up with a clothespin, and I write the time of capture on the bag. And so it is 6.52. So there are bat bags. Can you get those at Target? You actually can. They're like regular brown paper lunch bags, the kind <laughs> you would bring to school. <laughs> and then here's the thing. After they catch the bats, they put them in a little cooler. <laughs> it's like, this one's for lunch, this one's for the bats. Yeah. There's no ice. It's just to carry the bats. Uh, he's already got, he just dropped the second bat into the bag. 6.53. So he's got the net back up in the air, and he's already caught a third bat. So as I watched from about 50 yards away, I could see Jessica and Harry standing in the swarm of bats, raising and lowering the net like they're picking apples or something. <laughs> All right, so we have 10 bats, so we are just going to go ahead and carry our cooler with our bags full of bats back up to the top of the sinkhole so that we can work on our data collection. The data collection is the time-consuming part. To do that, we walked back with the cooler to a small clearing where there's a little outdoor lab. Now we just, we have this table set up with all of our equipment on it, and this is where we process the bats. So what exactly does it mean to process a bat? Like they have to fill out a form and make sure they get their social security number right? <laughs> no, it means that they're going to go through a series of steps to collect information about each bat. It starts with Harry weighing them while they're still inside the lunch bag. So once he's done, I just go ahead and pull out the bat. And so now I've got a little juvenile male bat in my hand. And if you put your two thumbs next to each other, that's about how big the body of the bat is. Oh my God. <laughs> So amazing. Wow. He's got his wings all spread out and you can see the membranes. Oh, and he's so tiny. And they only weigh, I don't know, like 10, 12 grams, which is about the weight of two quarters. So the next time you go to the dollar store and you're holding 50 cents, that's about how much one of these bats weighs. So they're really little tiny guys. Yeah, but really feisty. As we talked, the bat chomped down on Jessica's gloves with its tiny, sharp teeth, and it started screaming at her. And that's this little guy making those squeaking noises. So that's what a bat sounds like when it's trying to squirm out of your grasp? <laughs> exactly what it sounds like. And I have to say, bats are a lot different up close than I'd imagined. They're actually kind of cute. To me, they look like little puppies, and they've got these huge ears and these little wrinkly lips and these little whiskers. <laughs> and so one of my favorite things to do is to bring people out to actually see bats up close because a lot of times it'll change the way that they feel about bats, which um, is one of the most rewarding aspects of this work for me. 
Once we're finished ooing and eyeing over the adorable baby bat, Jessica got to work. First, she had to figure out how old the bat was by measuring the distance between two joint bones in its wings. I've got a microscope here that, oddly enough, I actually backlight with my cell phone because <laughs> that's the best way to see the joint, and I measure the gap through the microscope. She also drew blood from the tail and collected pellets of poop that the bats left behind in the bag. And then there's the issue of bat milk. <laughs> I always love the job of a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> bat milk is actually really difficult to get. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure it is. I mean, it really is like milking a cow or any other animal. It's just that they're so tiny. What was it like the first time you milked a bat? <laughs> Very difficult. <laughs> um, so it has tested my patience. But yeah, so the first time I ever milked a bat, um, we were catching them earlier in the night, and so they hadn't really produced a lot of milk yet. And so I wasn't sure if I was doing it wrong or if the bats just didn't have milk. And so the first one that I was able to successfully milk, like, I don't, we, I think, like, threw our hands up into the air and, like, jumped up and down because we were so excited that it finally worked. I can imagine not too many people have successfully milked a bat. Like, probably not enough to make cheese, even. Yeah, I think artisanal bat cheese is not a thing for a good reason. <laughs> Be like a tiny little pellet. <laughs> yeah. I should also say that you really shouldn't try to catch a bat yourself because there's definitely a risk of rabies. Noted. So what does Jessica do with all these bat fluids and measurements? She uses them for a little bit of science detective work to figure out what the bats have been eating. So I'm going to be doing stable isotope analysis from the milk samples and then also from insect samples. Stable isotope analysis is a technique that reveals a unique chemical fingerprint in bat food. Jessica's challenge is to find those fingerprints within samples of blood and the pellets of poop from the babies. Once she does that, she can track how the bat's diet changes from milk to insects over the course of the summer. So that's really cool, but why is it important to know how bats are weaned? One of the reasons is simply that we don't know. Um, bats are, are pretty understudied up till now, and so there's a lot of really basic questions that we just don't know about bats. So that in itself um, is enough to drive me to ask a question, but it's more than that. What Jessica learns could be really important for conservation, meaning how we protect animal species and their environments. Understanding the most stressful periods with the highest mortality rates are really important. I guess a classic example of that is um, our protection strategies with sea turtles. We often will put cages over nests of sea turtle eggs because it's an easy thing that we can do to help increase sea turtle survivorship. And so it's, it's kind of the same idea there. We want to make sure we know as much as possible about their life history so that we can make the best decisions we can. So I guess we want to do what we can to make sure that more adorable animal babies survive to become even cuter adults so that they can have another generation of even cuter animal babies. It's a circle of life. <laughs> it's a circle of cuteness. <laughs> so a huge part of making that happen is protecting animal habitat. 
Jessica is able to do her research because a group called Bat Conservation International bought the land that the bat cave is on in order to preserve it. Bat conservationists, the real life bat people. And really, anyone could grow up to be a real bat person. It's not just for superheroes. You know, five years ago, I never, ever would have guessed that this is what I would have been doing. I get to be right next to the largest group of, of mammals in the whole world, and that's not a lot of people get to do that and get the privilege to study them. So I feel extremely fortunate that, that I'm the kid that gets to do this. <laughs> if you were a bad person, what would you study? Draw us a picture or send us a recording. Send it to tumblepodcast at gmail.com or use the contact form on our website. We can't wait to hear your bat adventures. Thanks to Jessica Dreyer, PhD student, and Harry Pepper, an undergrad both at the University of Tennessee. Thanks also to Fran Hutchins, director of Bracken Cave, and Katie Jepson, the content producer at Bat Conservation International. Super special thanks to our friend Haley Gillespie for playing my Robin and coming to the Bat Cave and taking photos. You can see those photos and videos of bat weather on our blog, sciencepodcastforkids.com blog. We also have information about how you can visit Bracken Cave. And we have another great episode about bats called The Cave of the Upside-Down Bat. It's one of our early favorites. This week, for our Patreon members, we're going to be sharing more of our visit with Jessica, including some fascinating facts about what it's like to go inside the cave. If you're not a member yet, pledge at patreon.com slash tumblepodcast. You'll be helping us continue to make this show. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I wrote and produced this episode. And I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I make all of the music. Thanks for listening, and tune in next time for more stories of science discovery. Same bat time, same bat channel. Just a word before we get started. It's Halloween, and this episode is a little darker than our regular shows. It's about really fun and interesting science, but the topic might be sensitive for some. If you're uncomfortable with discussions of funerals and death in animals, you might want to skip this one. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, it's a special Halloween episode about what is perhaps the most Halloween-y experiments ever done. It's got a murder of crows, it's got scary masks, and it's gotten people in public parks kind of freaked out. We're sharing the story behind one scientist's very creepy road to discovery. The inspiration for this episode comes from one of our listeners. Hello, my name is Smith. I'm seven years old. Smith and his family live near the woods. One day on his way to school, Smith observed a bunch of crows eating a dead deer. Because crows are a scavenger species, they essentially clean up after the rest of nature, whether it's chips we dropped on the ground or, you know, a dead animal. So I was wondering, if crows eat dead things, 
when a crow dies, do they eat them or do they not? So I asked that to my mom and dad. They didn't understand. So we looked on the computer and we found this research. Smith and his parents wrote Tumble to tell us what they discovered. A blog post written by a scientist named Kaylee Swift describing what is perhaps the most Halloween-y experiment ever. People who were out, you know, for whatever reason, they would see this mass person and they would see a flock of crows following them through the trees, screaming their heads off. And there would just be this aha moment where even if they had no other context, they would say, the crows know that person. They know that person and they don't like them. What is happening? I have so many questions like, okay, what? I, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> yeah, well, I want to ask our listeners, what do you think is going on in this experiment? Why is there a person in a mask? Why are the crows following and screaming at them? Think about it for a little bit, and then we'll help you unravel the mystery. Okay, so let's start by meeting the person behind this scary scene in the woods. She's actually an incredibly friendly person. Yes, my name is Kaylee Swift. You could say I'm an ornithologist. I'm somebody who studies birds, specifically crows, or thanatology, meaning the scientific study of death. Yeah, she sounds really upbeat for someone who studies death for a living. Uh, for a living? <laughs> yes. Yeah, we get it. It's a morbid topic, but death can be just as fascinating as life. And crows are known for a behavior that's really unusual for animals, but also weirdly familiar for us humans. A lot of people had seen crows engaging in something that looked like a funeral, but it hadn't ever been formally explored by science. Wait, wait, crows have funerals? I mean, I guess they don't have to change clothes because they're already wearing black. <laughs> it's a pretty simple ceremony. When a crow dies, a big group of the other crows gather around and look at it. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Are they just like thinking about its life, its relationships, that time they got together and cawed? <laughs> Scientists have a number of theories about why crows have funerals. Maybe they're really sad and they're holding awake, just like people do. Maybe it's a social response, so it's a way for them to all gather and say, oh, Joe's dead, he was high on the list of hierarchy, so now I get to move up, or, you know, whatever it is. And then there's danger learning. Wait, danger learning? Yeah, the process of learning what's dangerous. Be just like yeah. if you had a route, you walked every day to school, and there was a really scary dog that scared you every time, you would change your route, right? You'd want to avoid that because you want to avoid that threat. And they're doing the same thing. They're acquiring information about their environment that can inform how they move through it to avoid scary things, specific predators that they can memorize and then say, eh, it's back, that scary person is back, everyone be on alert. Ah, so there's a reason why a crow might scream their head off at a person if they think it's dangerous. Yeah, and Kaylee wanted to know if that's the reason why crows would hold funerals. And so the study I conducted looked at whether or not danger learning was a motivation for this behavior, specifically with respect to whether or not that they learn 
the place where they find dead crows, maybe that place is dangerous. And if they're learning novel predators, new predators in association with those dead bodies. So crows are also finding a dead crow somewhere with a person? This is getting very weird. The job of the creepy person in the mask was to hold a taxidermied crow somewhere in a public park. Like a dead crow that's been stuffed? Exactly. On one day, we would introduce somebody uh, holding a dead crow. And then the next week, that person would come back and we'd see how the crows responded. The first visit was intended to establish the person as being dangerous. And the second visit was to see if the crows recognized them later. One of the ways that we measured whether or not crows were recognizing that person when they saw them again as a predator is is by that alarm call. Ah, so the crows were screaming because they actually did recognize the person. Yes, and here's where we get to the reason behind the mask. So when I was doing my study, I relied entirely on volunteers to be those, those people out there holding the dead crow or coming back. So Kaylee ran this experiment tons and tons of times with lots of different crows and lots of different locations. She worked 15 hours a day during the study, and she couldn't do all the work by herself. If Stacy helped me on the day where we presented the dead crow, uh, that following week when it was time to send that person back out, Stacy might not be available. Maybe she had a conflict. But by wearing masks... We eliminate that problem. So even if it's Joe that's available the next week, he just puts that mask on that Stacy wore, and we can still ask this question about crows recognizing faces. So the masks are not about scaring the crows. It's about making it so that they can recognize the people. Yeah, these weren't like Halloween masks. They were based on real people's faces. It's actually totally unintentional that they're really scary looking. (laughs) Kaylee showed me one over a video chat. So this is Linda. Oh, wow. Okay, so tell me, what does this mask look like? It looks like what an alien would look like if they were pretending to be a human. I have noticed that humans like to wear clothes. (laughs) I shall wear some clothes, too, and I will blend in perfectly. (laughs) The mask has holes for the eyes and a full wig, but the hair on the wig looks like it's never been combed. (laughs) And and the face kind of hangs loosely off Kaylee's face, which gives her kind of a horror movie look. (laughs) (laughs) Scary for crows, scary for people. There were actually six of these masks made. This is Michelle, and you'll see Michelle fits a lot more like she should. It's still kind of Halloween scary, but yes, it looks, it's less flappy, but um, yeah, not someone I would sit down next to on a park bench. Considering I did my studies near a lot of park benches, it was a, it was a problem. (laughs) Oh, scientists doing weird things in public parks. (laughs) I know. To kind of try and dispel the weirdness... Kaylee had all the volunteers hang big signs around their neck that said crow study. Oh, gosh. I'm not sure if that would be comforting. I think I'd still call the cops. Yes, plenty of parkgoers ended up calling the cops. <laughs> yes, I, I regularly interacted with officers of the law. You know, I, I don't know if I ever would have imagined when I was thinking about what scientists do on a daily basis 
that just showing up at parks wearing a creepy mask and unkempt wig while having crows scream at you would be just like an integral part of the scientific process. (laughs) It was for this experiment. And I have to note that no crow studiers were ever arrested. (laughs) Well, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So do you think that we figured out why a flock of crows was chasing a person in a mask screaming their heads off? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. I I think it's because a scientist wanted to find out why crows have funerals, and it turns out they recognize faces and associate them with danger. So the crows are just trying to scare off a scary person wearing a mask because of scheduling issues. (laughs) The person is wearing the mask because of the scheduling problems. (laughs) It's really not so scary when you know what's going on. I suppose curious is maybe the right word for the situation. That's appropriate, because as Kaylee says, this whole thing came out of curiosity. I am a huge proponent of science for the sake of curiosity. I think any time we do a study and we learn something about the natural world, we learn something about an animal, that there's just inherent value in pursuing questions of curiosity. Now that we've uncovered the design behind this experiment, it's time to design your own spooky study. Think of a question about a weird animal behavior you've always wondered about. Then come up with an idea of what you think the answer might be. How would you test out this idea? Discuss your experiment with your family and friends and see what they think. Thanks to Kaylee Swift, postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington in the School of Environmental and Forest Sciences. Many thanks also to Smith and Becca Hollis for sending in a great question and pointing us to Kaylee's research. You can submit your own questions on our website, sciencepodcastforkids.com. There's plenty more Halloween listening where this came from. Check out Halloween episodes of the great podcast, The Alien Adventures of Finn Caspian, and cool facts about animals. You can find these shows and many more podcasts for kids on the Kids Listen app. Find it on the Apple App Store or kidslisten.org. It's free. We have more from our interview with Kaylee Swift for our Patreon supporters on our exclusive ad-free podcast feed. To get these audio bonuses, all you need to do is pledge just a dollar a month at patreon.com slash tumblepodcast. Sign up now. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I wrote and produced this show. And I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I make all the music. Thanks for listening, and tune in next time for more stories of science discovery. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we're talking about cats. They aren't just good at the internet and tearing up your couch. They have a special ability to turn in midair as they fall to land on their feet. Flipping cats are a physics conundrum that scientists spent a hundred years puzzling out. And we're going to find out why. We know a lot of our listeners know and love cats, and uh, some of you even allow them to sleep in your houses. Cat lovers among us will be very aware of this common kitty move that created a scientific mystery. Our listener, Jillian, who has four 
yes, four cats, is going to describe it for us. Well, our cat named Neo, we pick him up sometimes, and when he went down, he kind of scratches and wiggles, and then he flops in the air when you let him go, and then he drops on his feet. So no matter what you do, cats always land on their feet. It's because they're little demons. <laughs> Whether they're falling from your arms or a table they're not supposed to be on, if a cat is falling with its back towards the ground, it will flip over to land on its feet. Our listener Paloma has seen her cat do it. My mom dropped Patas so I could see him flip. He flipped very quickly right side off. He didn't seem bothered at all. Well, how did he do it? Our listeners Amelia and Camilla have some theories about how cats do it. They're really light, so they can flip over in three seconds or less. I think cats don't fall on their backs because they can control their senses and abilities so they can flip their head, then tail, then body. So Amelia and Camilla think it might have something to do with how cats can control their bodies, just like they can control their owners' minds. (laughs) Well, we're going to find out if they're right with help from Greg Gaber, a professor of physics at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte. Cat turning was the original term that was used in the mid-1800s to describe it. Greg has a few cats, and he also skydives. So naturally, he got super curious about how cats turn in the air. One day, I happened across notes talking about this sort of long history of people studying the physics of dropping cats, and I got really intrigued by it. That is intriguing, but we know that cats can do it, so why is it a big deal? Why would scientists get obsessed with finding out how? It's because it seems like cats shouldn't be able to do it. (laughs) Of course they shouldn't. They're evil little monsters. (laughs) All right, calm down, Marshall. Okay. We're not even at the end of the episode. (laughs) But they're also so cute. (laughs) They are cute. Well, scientists thought cats were actually defying the laws of physics. Things can't spontaneously start rotating or spinning in space. And if something rotates one direction, there has to be something counter-rotating the other direction. And if you, for instance, if you sit in an office chair that can spin, if you twist your upper body to the left, say, the chair is going to rotate a bit to the right. That's conservation of angular momentum, that there's this equal and opposite reaction to any rotation action. The very fancy sounding conservation of angular momentum is one of Isaac Newton's fundamental laws of physics. That means everything in the universe should operate according to it, even cats. Even cats, those famous little rule breakers. (laughs) But cats aren't on an office chair. They're just randomly twisting around in midair, and then they're suddenly able to stop their twist without any other force acting on them. How do they do it? It's cat magic. Well, what if you tried spraying them with the water in the middle of the twist? Would they stop doing it? Like, no snowflake, no violating the laws of physics. No. (laughs) So how does the cat start flipping in the first place? Well, that's exactly where Snowflake was stumping scientists. (laughs) If you drop a cat in free fall and it's just falling at rest, it's not already spinning, then... 
how does it manage to, when it's not spinning, manage to get this net rotation? Because it seems like it violates this conservation of angular momentum. That's why in the 1800s, scientists put serious effort into solving the cat turning problem. So what did scientists think was going on? One common theory was that the cat was actually pushing off the hand of the person dropping it. Well, that would make sense. Pushing off the hand would give the cat the momentum to start turning. But many people said that there was no way that the cat could be pushing off the hands if the hands were holding their feet. They insisted that the cat was in free fall. Well, if you watch a cat fall in real life, it really moves too fast to see what's happening. Yeah, it's very, very fast. And that's why it took the development of a very special scientific tool to blow the cat case open. <laughs> like treats. <laughs> <laughs> like, listen, cat, we give you the treat, you tell us how you flip. No, it's not treats. It's photography. Before the 1890s, scientists were interested in studying how animals move, how they get around, they had to rely on what they could see. But, you know, a running animal, flying animal, can move much faster than the human eye can detect things. So a lot of the time, scientists were really just sort of guessing. And the famous example is how a horse gallops. So how a horse gallops was a scientific mystery, too? There was a long debate in the 1800s between different scientists about whether a horse's feet all completely leave the ground when it's galloping or not, or whether it always has a couple of feet on the ground. And that was only resolved in somewhere around the 1870s by a photographer named Moybridge, who took these high-speed photographs and showed, no, the horse has all four feet off the ground at the same time. So it's funny, we think of photography now as being everywhere because it is, but you know, back then it was this huge breakthrough. Yeah, it's actually a huge tool for discovery. So given that cats are naturals on camera, I'm guessing it wasn't too long before somebody decided to take photos of them flipping. The first um, high-speed photographs of a cat flipping over, they were done by a Frenchman named Etienne Jules Marais. These photos, which you can see on our website, are really cool. They're a black and white timeline of a cat flipping. And in 1894, Murray made a film of the experiment. It's what you could call the first ever cat video. The second one was when he put his hands under the cat's arms and made it look like it was playing the piano. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the earliest ancestor of the viral cat video was an image of cat flipping. So those photos ended the debate, right? Not exactly. He presented his results to the scientific community in about 1893, and the immediate reaction was almost outrage. Fortunately, scientists weren't outraged by cat pictures for too long because scientists love a puzzle. And with these photos, they finally had some clues. <laughs> and I guess the cats still weren't talking. More treats, please. <laughs> So how long did it take to prove that cats can't defy nature? Well, after Murray published his photos, it was still 75 years before physicists were able to crack the case in 1969. Wow, really? So the same year they landed a man on the moon, they also discovered how cats land on their feet. It was two major landings in 1969. One didn't have quite the publicity of the other, but was still significant. <laughs> the moon landing you're talking about, right? 
Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we're about to pull back the curtain on the cat magic. First, you can see from Mary's photos that the cat makes a V shape with its body. Now the cat can rotate its upper and lower bodies in opposite directions. And it can do that 180 degrees and open up again, and it'll be right side up. The cat's spine is so flexible, when it's in the V shape, it can move its body in two different directions, rotating against itself. So instead of flipping over all of its body in one roll, the cat turns its front legs one way and its back legs the other. At the same time, the cat pulls its front legs in and stretches its back legs out. This helps the front body start spinning more quickly than the back, according to the law of conservation of angular momentum. Then when the front legs are in the right position underneath its shoulders, the cat quickly pulls in its back legs so they can rotate in line with the front. All it needs to do now is brace for impact. Then scamper off like it didn't just mystify scientists for a hundred years. Yep, exactly. So now we can rest easy knowing that cats aren't above the laws of physics like they are above all of us. <laughs> Camilla and Amelia had part of the answer. Cats are very flexible, and they have incredible control of their bodies. So now that we know the answer, can we learn to flip like cats? Actually, NASA had that idea. In the early days of the space program, I think in the 1950s and 60s, NASA was interested in figuring out how a cat can flip over in free fall just because it's a very valuable skill for an astronaut in a weightless environment to be able to do as well, to be able to say, hey, I'm stuck facing this wall and I can't touch anything, so I want to flip over and face the other wall. How do I do it? There's a video of NASA flipping cats in zero gravity, and it's seriously one of my favorite things on the <laughs> internet. So Greg says that stories like the cat flipping debate are why he likes to write about the history of science in addition to his regular job as a scientist. When we're taught science, we're often just taught that there's a right answer and that people didn't know the answer and then one day somebody figured out the right answer. But when you actually look at the history of science, you see it's this process of exploration, this process of testing different ideas and seeing which ones work and which ones don't work. That's the way science is done. We keep trying different ideas until we find one that fits the available data. Okay, so we want to give you a listener challenge. Can you play with the law of conservation of angular momentum? Try it out next time you're on a playground spinny thing or, you know, whatever you call those things. I don't know, merry-go-rounds, spinny cups. What happens when you reach out your arms or your legs? Do you go faster or slower? Try it. Thanks today to Jillian, Paloma, Camilla, and Amelia for sending in their cat stories and theories. Thanks to Greg Gaber, Associate Professor of Physics specializing in optical science at UNC Charlotte for talking to us. You can read his blog, Skulls in the Stars, to read more about cat flipping and other interestingness on physics, history, and math. 
We'll have a link on our website, tumblepodcast.com. We have educational materials to go along with this episode on our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash tumblepodcast, where you can also find an ad-free version of our show. And if you happen to be on iTunes, don't forget to leave us a review. Our intern is Andrea Gonzalez. Sarah Lentz is our associate producer, and she wrote this show. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I produce this show. I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I made all the music. And don't forget to tune in next time for more stories of science discovery. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall, and this is Tumble, the show where we explore the stories behind science discovery. Today, we're talking about dogs. And we'll find out that even a simple question about dogs can be harder than it seems to answer. Okay, so Marshall, you got this question for us. Uh, Yeah, so as many of you may or may not know when I'm not recording this podcast or sleeping. I am a middle and high school music teacher. One day during lunch, I asked one of my sixth grade students for a science question. The first thing you should do is just say your name and what grade you're in. Okay. My name is Amalia Allen, and I'm in sixth grade. I have a list of topics I'm supposed to ask you about. So theoretical astrophysics, which is like stars, Dogs, which I think you know what those are, yes. and insects, I think you know what those are. You have two insects at home? No, I have two dogs at home. Okay. Two dogs. Okay. Think about not just like what you're curious about, but also think about like how do we know. Make sense? Okay. So, what makes dogs so loyal? Ooh, I really like that question. What makes dogs loyal? What do you think we mean when we say that dogs are loyal? Um, I think that means that they're, you know, faithful to their owners. They're unlikely to betray them or run away or, unlike cats, not constantly plotting their owner's demise. That's true. I don't think our dog would do that. No, I don't think he's scheming right now. (laughs) I think he's mostly just thinking, It would be nice to have treats right now. I will think about treats. Does being loyal mean that a dog would protect an owner from danger or save them in an emergency? I mean, I suppose some dogs would do that, but our dog has these like short little stubby legs. I don't think he'd be able to protect us with them. Well, I mean, so there's lots of open questions about Amalia's question. So I called up Mia Cobb, who's a canine scientist and half of the team that runs the blog, Do You Believe in Dog? Hey there, Lindsay. Can you hear me? Okay, I'm just going to put you on speaker. Obviously, you can hear me as Australian. Uh, yeah. And I asked her Amalia's question, what makes dogs loyal? And her answer really surprised me. I would say, do we actually know dogs are loyal? Do we actually know that dogs are loyal? I mean, what does she mean by that? There's a couple of ways to look at loyalty. I think my dog is loyal to me. I I would like to think if I was standing in a paddock with five different people and we all called him, 
that he would come to me and you could say that's because he's loyal. If I put on my ethologist hat, so if I get all scientist, I could look at that same situation and say, well, sure, he comes to me, but that's because I feed him twice a day and he's learned that hanging out with me is beneficial to him. Sure. I mean, okay, that makes sense. So, you know, our dog had another owner before us and uh, now he only wants to hang out with us and not that old owner because we're the ones who are feeding him. Yeah, and sometimes we give him treats and take him for walks and uh, say nice things to him. (laughs) You're a good boy. Mia brought up another point. We talk all the time about how dogs feel, but can we actually know what dogs feel? We know that animals can feel pain. We know that they can suffer. We know that they can be frustrated. We know that they can be happy. So it's okay to talk about some of these emotions, but something like loyalty, we haven't worked out how to measure that yet. And without being able to actually be inside an animal's head and without subtitles that tell us what they're thinking, we can't assume that they feel all of these feelings, particularly the ones like loyalty in the same way that people do. Okay, so from her perspective, loyalty is sort of this thing that we can't measure. Right, but we have this idea that's been around forever that we hold on to that dogs are loyal and that they're not only friendly and faithful, but they actually support us, that they'll save us if we were in danger. You know Lassie, right? Well, yeah. I feel like everybody knows Lassie, but I don't know if I've ever seen any episodes. Well, I mean, you get the point that every week, the dog Lassie saves her human from danger, a little boy named Timmy. You get I guess the... you've seen more Nick at night than I have. I just was just watching episodes on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> but... Mia told me about a super interesting experiment that challenges what she calls the Lassie effect. So an owner walked into a strange building with their pet dog. The experiment was set up like this. The owner and the dog went into a small room to say hello to a stranger. So the dog knew that another person was there. And then they would walk into a larger room with a small bookcase in the middle of the floor. And so the owner kind of got distracted looking at the bookcase and let go of the lead, and the dog would sort of wander off sniffing around in the room, and then the owner would pretend that the bookcase had fallen on them and pushed them down to the ground, and they called to the dog for help. (laughs) That sounds ridiculous. Yeah, it looks as ridiculous as it sounds, and the video's actually on YouTube. Okay, (laughs) okay. So she just tipped this harmless bookcase on top of herself. And now she's pretending she's pinned. The dog is now sniffing the wall. It's a very interesting... Okay. Brandy, go. Go get help. Nope. Not not happening. Now, if we think that dogs are really loyal, we might think that the dog would go to the stranger in the adjoining room and signal to them that their owner is in distress, that they've got this problem being stuck under the bookcase. You're a horrible dog. <laughs> the dogs just kept sniffing the room. Most of the time, they didn't even walk over to the owner who was calling for help. So, 
this wasn't just Brandy being a horrible dog. <laughs> it was like 28 dogs that didn't go for help. Oh, no. 28 horrible dogs. It's just the worst dogs. <laughs> no, they actually look like normal dogs to me. So, so does this experiment prove that dogs aren't loyal? Well, I think the part of loyalty where you assume your dog would help you if you were trapped under a bookcase. <laughs> so, yeah, but don't you think that the dog might have been able to tell that their human was not an actual danger? Like, if dogs can smell fear? I mean, I think they could probably just tell it was fake. Also, like, how would they have known that they were supposed to go get help and not do something else, like just lick their owner's face? I wondered those same things. So that's why I called up Krista McPherson, who did the study, to see what she had to say. Hello? Hi, Krista. This is Lindsay. Hi. So Krista told me she was a young student when she did this experiment a couple of years ago, and she'd grown up with rough collies, and that's the kind of dog that Lassie is, and she wanted to see if this Lassie effect was real. So I think I, as much as anyone, really wanted to believe that my dog was going to save me, and and he didn't. The, the video is online, and it's hilarious. Do you think that dogs could have known that the experiment was a setup, that it wasn't a real emergency, and that the owner was faking it? Yeah, that is an excellent question, and no experiment is perfect. Um, a human experiencing a real emergency is presumably going to emit um, adrenaline or um, some type of pheromone that, that a dog would likely be able to smell. And so I can't replicate that because these aren't genuine emergencies. Marshall, I, I think that means that you had a really good point which I don't think you should be nearly as surprised about as you are. But what did we actually learn from this study? Dogs are certainly capable of heroics. What we're saying is that they don't seem to have this insight. I think the lesson is the dog who played Lassie was a good actor. <laughs> well, or it was very good editing. So unless your dog is trained to save people or the emergency also puts the dog in danger, they're not going to search for help. What, I mean, what does this say about dogs and loyalty? I'm, I'm really excited to tell you about this. Remember, we're talking about this experiment because Mia brought it up to prove that dogs aren't loyal. But Krista says it's the opposite. When the owner's trapped under that bookcase, there is a significant tendency for the dog to stay very close to the owner, if not touching the owner. In some cases, the dogs would actually like lay on top of the owner. Um, and to me, I, I would characterize that as loyalty, right? So do you think that you could call dogs loyal? Absolutely. Yeah, um, dogs have been uh, selectively bred over thousands of years to attend to us and to work with us. And, uh, you know, that's why that's why we love dogs so much. Um, dogs will consistently go out of their way to interact with people, and uh, absolutely, I, I would say that's 100% loyalty. I really love what we've come to here, because we have two different dog scientists with two different opinions. And I think that's so interesting. Um, you know, Mia said there's no way to measure loyalty, which... I think to a certain extent is true. It just looks like 
you know, we have two scientists with two different definitions of what they think of when they say loyal. Yeah, and Krista says dogs are loyal because we've bred them to be that way, to want to interact with us. And I think that would answer Amalia's question, what makes dogs loyal? Okay, so, but if we can't measure loyalty, how do we know anything about what makes a dog loyal? I mean, that's another really good question, so maybe we should make an experiment. Ooh, we get to come up with all sorts of things that prove that dogs are loyal, like, uh... Or disprove. Sure. So we could ask things like, when you're in an argument, does the dog take your side, even though they see that maybe the other person is right? Or after you have that argument, do they come over to comfort you instead of the other person? You could give them like two seats at a lunch table and see who they decide to sit with. <laughs> That's a really good <laughs> way. <laughs> yeah, and no holding chicken underneath the table allowed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's our show for today. Thanks to Mia Cobb. You can read more about the science of dogs on her blog, Do You Believe in Dog? Also thanks to Krista McPherson, who's a PhD student at Western University. We'll have a link to her videos of the experiment on our Facebook page. Find us there and like us. Our last thanks go to Amalia Allen for asking a not-so-simple question. But a really good question. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I produce this show. I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I make all the music. Sarah Lent is our associate producer. Ashley Cox is our social media and newsletter maven. You can subscribe to our podcast recommendation letter for families at tumblepodcast.com. And if you like our show, leave us a review on iTunes. We really appreciate it, and we love to hear what you say about the show. And tune in next time for more stories of science discovery. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. We're taking you to Pika Town. Won't you take me to Pika Town? <laughs> Pikas will be your new favorite animal if they're not already. They're like chipmunks, but somehow cuter. They're helping scientists study climate change. We'll meet one Pika scientist who turned a natural disaster into an important discovery. So you know Pikachu from Pokemon? Yeah, but... Isn't this podcast about science for kids, not cartoons for kids? Hold on. It's relevant because pikas, the animal we're talking about today, are the inspiration for Pikachu. Oh, do they go pika pika and shoot lightning bolts? <laughs> no, but they do sound like this. Pikas live in mountainous areas in parts of Asia, Eastern Europe, and Western North America. In Salem, Oregon, 8th graders at the Jane Goodall Environmental Middle School study pikas in their conservation biology class. Vanessa, Kellen, and Caroline gave us a few quick pika facts. Pikas live on rocky slopes called taluses. Pikas like to walk and hop in between the big rocks. What I love about pikas is they're kind of small and cute, and they also have very weird tolerances to temperature where they don't like really hot temperature or really cold temperature. 
With climate change, scientists are worried about the snowpack that pikas use in the winter. So I'm picking up a pretty strong message here. Pikas live in the mountains. They're cute, cute as little buttons, but they're sensitive to climate change. Exactly. That's why the class has been helping a scientist named Pika Joe collect data to study pikas in their area. What a crazy coincidence with her name that she studies pikas. <laughs> well, her real name is Johanna Varner. She got the nickname after she started studying pikas. So we're going to learn about her research. But first, let's find out how one becomes pika anyone. <laughs> pika Jim or pika Tom. You could be pika Marshall. Well, I actually did not plan to become a pika ecologist. I actually studied for five years uh, as an engineer. After Johanna graduated from university, she knew she didn't really want to become an engineer. So she worked at a bakery and then traveled across the world, trying to figure out what she wanted to do with her life. Then one day, she picked up a newspaper and found her answer. And I read this newspaper article about pikas. And in the newspaper article, they had interviewed a woman who had studied them for her PhD. This woman was a pika scientist, and Johanna suddenly knew that's what she wanted to be, too. I thought, wait a minute, there are these people called ecologists, and they go camping and hiking, and they watch the pikas, and I love pikas. Johanna immediately wrote an email to the pika scientist. It basically went like this. Dear Dr. Deering, my name's Joe, and I really like pikas, and I would like to become a pika biologist, and I'm wondering what I should do. The pika scientist wrote back and said Johanna could come work with her. After two years of training, Johanna decided to go to school to get a PhD, which meant that she would be a pika scientist. Okay, so who doesn't want to spend time with adorable animals for the rest of their lives? But what does that mean? What do you even do? Cuddle? Do you test their cuddling features? <laughs> Potentially. Well, like any kind of science, you ask questions, create hypotheses, and set up experiments. Johanna's favorite part is getting out into the mountains of the Pacific Northwest in North America to observe pikas. That's what she calls fieldwork. When we're doing fieldwork, we typically have really early mornings. That's because pikas are most active between 6 and 9 in the morning. Armed with coffee and breakfast bars, Johanna and her crew get up to visit them. Sometimes we have to hike in pretty far, sometimes not so far, to get to a site and sort of set up shop. I bring a little cushion that I can sit on on the rocks. How does she know where to find pikas? Well, pikas have what we call a tell. Like when you know when they have a good poker hand? Yeah. <laughs> Each pika has its own little territory of a wide circle on a rock slide. They have a hidden stockpile of plants to get them through the winter, but they all have the same hiding place, and Johanna knows where to find it. Typically, they're under the biggest rock in the rock slide, so typically you'll go to the biggest rock in the rock slide and you look under it, and if you find plants, then you know that there's a pika that's active there. So pikas are actually kind of bad at hiding their stuff. But why is it important to study pikas? In addition to being extremely cute, pikas are also really valuable indicators of the health of alpine ecosystems. That means pikas can tell us about the other plants and animals that live in their mountain habitat and how they all work and live together. You mean like they'll send little dispatches from the mountains? May 3rd, saw some bugs, ate some tasty plants. Unfortunately, no. It's about how pikas behave in response to change. 
So they're sensitive sometimes to changes in temperature or changes in snowpack. And for those reasons, we can we can study pikas to learn more about how ecosystems are changing. Well, that's exactly what the students said. Scientists are worried about how changing ecosystems, meaning climate change, impact pikas. Climate change is affecting a lot of animal species, not just polar bears. The temperatures in the mountains are getting warmer, and rain and snow isn't as predictable as it used to be. Scientists noticed that the number of pikas in certain areas were shrinking, or even disappearing. Oh, that's really sad. Yeah, it is. But there's also something strange about how it's happening. Pikas are really interesting because it's not really happening the same all over their range. What does that mean? Well, in some places, pikas are doing just fine. So you mean if pikas who live on one mountain are doing fine, the ecosystem there is probably okay. But if they've disappeared off another mountain, it means the whole mountain is in trouble? Yeah. And that's what it means for pikas to be an indicator species. And why pikas are more than just another adorable furry face. Right. So when Johanna went to set up her first study as a pika scientist, she chose one site where pikas seem to be doing all right. Mount Hood, a giant volcanic mountain in Oregon. So she hiked out there, found the pika stockpile, sat down on a cushion. Right, the whole drill. It was a beautiful summer, and Johanna planned to go back the next year and see how the pikas did over the winter. But then something unexpected happened. What I discovered is that in September of 2011, shortly after I had left, there was a big wildfire that swept across the whole north face of Mount Hood, and it burned up... um, most but not all of the sites where I had placed temperature sensors and had been observing the behavior of pikas. Oh no! The places where she'd spent her mornings hanging out with pikas were now charred and burned. Johanna was devastated. First thing that I did was kind of curl up into a ball, cry, you know, say sad things like, my PhD just went up in flames. So was everything ruined? Did she just have to start over? Well, after she uncurled herself from the ball position, she started to see things differently. I came to realize that this was actually a real opportunity to study how fires affect pikas. Um, We're seeing changes across the American West. Fires are becoming more frequent and more intense. And those changes are predicted to occur exactly in the places where we find pikas. Wow. So fires are another big part of climate change. And she just changed her study to look at that. She hadn't planned on it, but because she set up her study before the fire, she had a really unusual opportunity. What's really cool about that is that understanding kind of the fundamental requirements for a species' habitat to be, you know, able to support that species is something that's really difficult to do in ecology. So the fire could help her figure out what pikas need in order to live somewhere? Exactly. And it's usually so hard to do because ecosystems are so complex. It's hard to know exactly how much of what they need to survive. But the pikas were starting from scratch and Johanna could watch. After the fire, she went back to the sites. There was very little to eat. Um, The rock slide itself was completely charred. You know, there was pretty much one elderberry bush for 30 feet from the rocks. And, you know, we found pikas living there. What? The pikas survived the fire? Yes. It was an incredible survival story. (laughs) These were the same pikas as before? How did they make it through a fire? The clue was in something else that survived the fire. Johanna's temperature sensors. 
Well, first, I was very surprised that my data loggers had not been destroyed or melted. She picked them up and plugged them into her computer. They had measured the temperature nonstop throughout the fire. Um, but when I downloaded the data from those sensors, what I found was that the the temperatures in the rock slides down in the, the crevices where the pikas actually spend a lot of time, it never got above about 70 degrees. That's unbelievable. It's like a nice summer day temperature. I know. The rock slide served as a really great temperature buffer. The pika's own habitat had saved them. So when Johanna went back to observe them the next two summers, she discovered how they recovered from the fire. They just needed one thing, plants. It didn't seem to matter what plants were there. The pikas needed a certain number of plants per square foot, basically, in order to come back. And once there were that many plants per square foot, that's when we saw the pikas come back. So when a pika is out house hunting, it's like looking around like, oh, definitely going to need to repair that rock over there and uh, maybe move this so that we, we need a bigger rock moved in so that we can have something to hide under. Oh, but, you know, we're right next to the plants. I think we'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> They're very willing to deal with a fixer-upper. <laughs> it's a surprising and sort of heartening that, that at least in some times and some capacities, these animals have the ability to bounce back. It's also good news that the kind of plants doesn't matter because climate change might affect the type of vegetation that can survive in their habitat. It's support that vegetation changes as a result of climate change are not likely to be affecting pikas. If they are negatively affected by climate change, it's probably more likely that it's through changes in temperature or precipitation patterns. If pikas are affected, it's because of temperature and precipitation, how much rain and snow is in their environment. And it's helpful for scientists like Johanna to know what to focus on. Well, you know, I have a lot of hope for pikas here. Me too. Another cool thing is you don't have to be a pika scientist to help out with the pika science. If you live in areas where pikas live, or nearby, you don't have to live on top of the rock slide, you can collect data just by taking pictures. You can also submit observations of pikas, uh, including pictures and sound files, to a platform called iNaturalist. And there's an app that you can download, and there's actually a project on iNaturalist called the American Pika Atlas. That's so neat. So not only can you get total Instagram-worthy photos of furry adorableness, you can contribute to science. Everyone wins. Do you love spotting animals in your area? Take Johanna's suggestion and check out iNaturalist.org. It's really cool because you can keep track of your own nature observations and contribute to science about plants and animals, not just pikas. There's projects all over the world about everything from bees in North America to reptiles in Italy to flowers in Germany. Ask an adult to help you sign up, find a project, and become a naturalist. Let us know what you see by emailing us at tumblepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks to Johanna Varner, Assistant Professor of Biology at Colorado Mesa University, as well as Vanessa Carter, Kellen Whitley, and Caroline Minning, 8th grade students at Jane Goodall Environmental Middle School in Salem, Oregon. Special thanks to their teacher, Mike Weddle, for helping record and coordinate with us. If you'd like to learn more about pikas, check out our blog post at sciencepodcastforkids.com. 
Thanks to all our new patrons this week. Ryan Nakaya of The Kids Should See This. Ryan says she and her kid are fans of ours, and we're fans of theirs. Amalia and Kono from Warwick, Rhode Island, who love to listen to Tumble on the way to school in the morning. We're working on a lot of cool new stuff right now, and our patrons on Patreon are always the first to hear about it. We also have a teacher store full of episode transcripts, curriculum packages, and Marshall's awesome science songs. If you pledge $5, you get free access to all that stuff. Besides the rewards, if you know that Tumble has contributed something meaningful to your life and your family's life, please consider pledging. It is a huge part of how we support ourselves making this show. Go to patreon.com slash tumblepodcast today or click the donate button on our website. Sarah Lentz is our editor, and she also did the interview for this episode. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I wrote and produced this episode. And I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I wrote all of the music you hear. Thanks for listening, and tune in next time for more stories of science discovery. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. Today, we're taking a trip and uncovering a mystery about sea stars and their sticky feet. What you think you know about sea stars' spectacular grip might be wrong. We'll head to an aquarium to see it in action, and then we'll find out how scientists made a big mistake when it came to studying sea stars. Hi, my name is Chloe, and I'm nine years old. And my question is, how do sea stars grip onto rocks? Our listener Chloe goes tide pooling every summer near the Atlantic Ocean. That's where she's found sea stars in the wild. I see them on top of rocks at the beach, and I don't understand how they do it. She has her suspicions, though. I think they might stick on you in slime. But how would we know if sea stars are secret slimesters? You should say that ten times fast. I think scientists could find out by putting them on a piece of glass and seeing how they stick. That's, that's actually a really good idea. Because the glass is clear and you could get a close look at their um, things. Feet? Do they have feet? They do. They're called tube feet. <laughs> tube feet. Do they wear tube socks? Oh my god, that's so good. I had not thought of that one. Depending on the species, a sea star can have tens of thousands of feet. Man, that's got to be a huge sock budget. Yeah, that's what they spend most of their money on. They actually don't wear socks because their tube feet help them stick and they help them eat. Did you know that some sea stars actually pop their stomachs out of their mouths to eat? <laughs> I would really change a dinner party if that's how we did it. <laughs> Ooh, Stephanie, this looks delicious. Let me try. <laughs> so it's kind of amazing that anything can do that. I, I thought that sea stars were just pretty simple, like hard things that stick onto rocks. Um, turns out they're a lot cooler than we give them credit for. I started my journey into sea stardom with... <laughs> Good one. <laughs> yeah. I started with Chloe's idea to find out how sea stars stick. My first step was to take a trip to the Birch Aquarium when I was visiting San Diego, California. Testing, testing. That's where I met Delaney Medina in a room with a few sea stars and a sneaky octopus. 
And uh, a fun fact, he actually got out last week, so we had to put some extra sandbags on. <laughs> Delaney is an educator and naturalist at the aquarium, and she was going to help me get up close and personal with sea stars. But first, I had to get their name right. Is it sea stars or starfish? Because I always called them starfish when I was little. Yeah, so a lot of people have. I called them starfish growing up. Um, but we're trying to more use the term sea star just because a lot of kids can get confused. They hear starfish and they think it must be a type of fish. Um, but they're not a fish. They are something we call an echinoderm. An echinoderm. So they're definitely not a fish. No, they're an underwater invertebrate, which means that they don't have bones. Fish definitely have bones. I've gotten some caught in my teeth. Yeah, but like fish, they can be found in all the world's oceans. Sea stars inhabit all sorts of different habitats in the ocean. Locally here off of California, you know, we have a lot of great tide pools made up of rocky reefs. Warmer waters, we can see them in coral reefs. The sandy bottom, whether that's more shallow or out in the deep, deep ocean, up to thousands of meters deep. In the aquarium, they were right in front of me. Delaney had set up two different species of sea stars in clear plastic tubs filled with sand and seawater. It was exactly like Chloe's suggestion. Okay, so the first species of sea star I'm going to show you is called a bat star. And uh, we call it a bat star because if you can kind of see between each of the arms, they're webbed. Kind of like a bat has those webbed wings that stick out. So do they also sleep upside down? No. And sea stars can be all sorts of colors and shapes, and uh, the arms are shaped differently. And then if we turn it over here, you can see the undersides of the arms, and they have lines that run down each of their five arms, and you can see the tube feet. That's what I was there to see. Tube feet. They're kind of like clear pinheads on macaroni. (laughs) That's super weird. (laughs) I'm really glad my feet aren't like that. (laughs) They're all different sizes on all different species. On the bat star, the tube feet are tiny and they completely coat the underside of the sea star. When I saw them, they were waving all different directions, like they're just trying to get a foothold. You can see the tube feet kind of seeking out at the very tip of the star. That's really cool. And moving, like, a, you know, like we think of centipedes having, like, right. an insane amount of feet. Like, these guys have an infinity more insane amount of feet. Yeah. On the larger sea star here, the larger bat star, it just had its tube feet sticking out. So you can see they can use them to stick onto the walls. I took a bunch of photos and videos, which you can see at our website. These bat sea stars are moving, and they just look like they're gliding, basically. Yeah, this this movement, um, it's very it's very uniform. So when it's you know it is slowed down, but you can see it's very graceful. Although these sea stars were really easy to pick up, some sea stars have super powerful grips. Uh, okay, but did you find out how they do it by using Chloe's method? Did you see those little tube feet gripping on? No, I could see how sea stars use their tube feet. But just observing them with my eyes wouldn't explain how they work. That's why, after I left the aquarium, I called Chris Ma, one of the world's experts on sea stars. So I've described about 50 species at this point, 50 new species. Until now, I did not know that there were more than 50 species of sea stars even, let alone 50 new ones. There are over 1,900 known sea star species, and Chris is hoping to get it up to an even 2,000. Okay, so can he help us figure out how tube feet work? Yes. 
And the story starts almost 200 years ago. There was a commonly held notion in the 19th century that the, the tips were essentially uh, suction cups. Meaning those pinheads I saw on the top of the tube feet. And this was not an unreasonable assumption because of the shape and so forth. So in one sense, this was your starting hypothesis, you know. This is how they thought it, it worked. A starting hypothesis, meaning their first explanation. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. The problem was, that's where the scientific process ended. For hundreds of years. It was a hypothesis that had essentially become kind of a, uh, a, a semi-fact. Uh, so it ended up being just an assumption that they didn't test, like you're supposed to test a hypothesis. It was a hypothesis that was not backed up by evidence, but it was just accepted as true. In the 80s, there were several scientists uh, who began to notice odd uh, holes in this idea. Those odd holes started with actual holes. One of the observations that scientists made uh, was that sea stars could move on a porous surface. Suction cups work when you push them down on a solid surface like a window, sucking out all the air. It creates like a cavity or seal that then attaches to the surface. Hence the pop when you pull it off. But sea stars are regularly observed in aquariums scooting along grates just fine, which are surfaces full of big open holes. So how could a suction cup work on a surface with a big open hole? And it doesn't. Man, that seems so obvious. Like, you don't really need to be a scientist to notice that. I know. It's just that no one really asked the question. But once they did... The physical evidence against the suction cup theory continued to mount. If you put any suction cup on a glass surface, uh, there's no friction. You can move it around. That's not what happens with tube feet in sea stars, because if you try to move them, uh, they remain stuck. Well, I mean, they could just be really stubborn. And so scientists began to notice something very unusual. And uh, this was that as sea stars walked along the glass, they would actually leave little footprints. And these footprints were solid. They weren't round and empty in the middle, as you might expect a suction cup. They're actual footprint clues. Cold case, sea stars. Fast forward a, a few decades later, uh, there were scientists in Belgium who began to study the nature of tube feet in not only sea stars, but their cousins, the sea urchins. They were picking up where the starting hypothesis left off 200 years ago, with actual testing. And so what they, they found upon testing was that the model for suction cups was simply not supported. But if not suction cups, what is it? How do sea stars grip onto rocks? The tube feet were using a glue. A glue? Uh, an adhesive system similar to the way geckos use uh, a glue to stick to the wall. It was what's called a duogland adhesive system. So uh, sort of two chemicals are emitted by the tube feet, one to allow them to stick and one which allows them to unstick. So this is no Elmer's glue stick or super glue or anything you can buy in the store because the sea stars actually make these chemicals in their bodies that they secrete out to the tips of their tube feet. Like Spider-Man. Kind of. 
<laughs> so back up. How did scientists figure out that it was glue? With something called an electron scanning microscope. And so these are very powerful microscopes that that essentially shoot electrons at the surface, providing an almost surreal kind of uh, imagery uh, that comes back. When the scientist aimed the electron scanning microscope on the surfaces that sea stars had climbed over... Uh, scientists were able to, uh, number one, observe the footprints. What they saw was leftover adhesive, or glue. The smoking glue gun, as it were. <laughs> but they also wanted to know... How they work. You know, what kinds of, uh, of ducts and other types of uh, places where these chemicals are secreted through the bottom of the tube feet. Here's what they found out. The bottom of every tube foot has a special layer called a fuzzy coat. I love fuzzy coats. They're so cozy. <laughs> when the tube foot makes contact with a surface, special cells release chemicals onto the ground. They form a filmy substance underneath the fuzzy foot coat. A uh, filmy substance. So you would say that sea stars are secret slimesters. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, but secret slime is just one part of a layered system. Next, the special cells release a substance that bulks up the fuzzy coat, giving sea stars that tight grip they're known for. So they're stuck to the rock, but is it really hard to let go with all that bulk? No, they just release a new substance and the tube foot picks up easily, leaving the fuzzy coat and all its bulkiness behind. In other words, the telltale footprint. Exactly. Oh, so sea stars are a lot more complex than we give them credit for. Back in the day, simple animals were thought to have simple structures. And in fact, sea stars are not so simple. They're sticky geniuses. You know, keep in mind that, that echinoderms in general are older than dinosaurs. Most people don't realize that. Um, and so the mechanisms and all of their adaptations, including tube feet and these adhesive systems, have been around for, for hundreds of millions of years. Well, that's crazy that it's only been in the past few years that humans have come to understand what sea stars have been doing for millennia. And we were so content to give it a really simple explanation, which appears in many textbooks as a fact. And so that's why it's always important in science to test the basic assumptions of what you're studying. This is just one example of what happens all the time in science and in life. Sometimes there's gaps between the hypothesis and the experiment. In the meantime, the best available explanation can be misinterpreted as scientific fact. Well, so how do we know what's really known? Like, if we read a fact in a textbook, how do we know it's been tested? That is a big question. There's some facts, and they're the starting point of knowledge, not the end of knowledge. Chris told me that if you have questions about something you're learning, go and do your own research. As you look back, you might find something that got missed. And that's really how science works. Like, you can always question what's known and discover new things. Right. The scientists who had the same question as Chloe ended up discovering something incredible. And someday, humans might be able to copy what these sea stars do to make glue that works underwater. It's like you could be at an underwater crafting party where you're just scrapbooking with a bunch of sea stars. <laughs> the picture of us eating some goop on the bottom of the ocean. Oh, that was a fun vacation to the Pacific. <laughs> now that we've met sea stars, our friendship will last forever. <laughs> Thanks, sea stars. You're awesome. <laughs> What's your favorite animal fact? 
Once you come up with the coolest thing you think you know about an animal, look it up. Can you find out how scientists know it's true? Is there real evidence and testing behind it? If you think that there's room for doubt, email us with your question at tumblepodcast at gmail.com and maybe we'll get on the case. Thanks to Delaney Medina, educator and naturalist at the Birch Aquarium at the Scripps Oceanographic Institute in La Jolla, California. And thanks as well to Caitlin Scully and Beth Chi. Thanks also to Chris Ma, research associate at the National Museum of Natural History at the Smithsonian Institution, and the writer of Echinoblog, a blog for all things echinoderm. It's hands down the best resource for sea star info on the internet. You can check out my pictures and videos of sea stars from my aquarium visit on the blog at our website, sciencepodcastforkids.com. You'll see a sea star doing a ninja backbend and find a link to Chris's explanation of why sea stars don't suck. And thanks also to our Patreon supporters, Julian Perry, go Gators, Julian, and Larson Brown. If you want to join these awesome people, go to patreon.com slash tumblepodcast and support us at any level you like. And if you haven't already noticed, Marshall will add anything you want to your shout out. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I'm looking forward to something weird in the future. (laughs) Sarah Lentz is our editor. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I wrote and produced this show. I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I make all of the music. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for more stories of science discovery. So, Marshall, we're doing something new this week. Ooh, what is it? We're trying out an idea I've been really excited about. (laughs) Is it that new cupcake recipe? No, it's better. What could possibly be better? Kids asking science questions on our podcast. See, I think at the best, that's the same as cupcakes. (laughs) I personally think it's better than cupcakes. Can I just have some cupcakes, though? I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery. And answer your questions. This time, we're talking about bats, with the help of fifth graders in Austin, Texas. So tell me about those kids. They're a bunch of super smart kids, and they were super curious about bats. I'll let them introduce themselves. Uh, my name is Jack Schlitt, and I'm 10 years old. I'm Jacob Burrows, and I'm 10 years old, and I'm about to turn 11. I'm Kara Thomas, and I'm 10 years old, about to turn 11. So what did they want to know? It's a really simple question about something everyone knows about bats, but maybe you never thought why. Why do bats hang upside down? Okay, well, that's, that's a really good question. I know. Hanging upside down is like top ten things that bats do. <laughs> but... What are the other nine? <laughs> <laughs> Fly. Fly. Hang out in caves. Eat bugs. Eat fruit. Suck blood. Suck blood. Turn into vampires. Yeah. Okay, so we know hanging upside down is a popular thing for bats to do, but why do they do it? I'm going to take that question to a bat scientist 
But first, I asked Jack, Jacob, and Kara how they thought scientists might have found the answer. Maybe they could like、um, look at the bats or、uh, notice futures of the bats, or like test their DNA or something. They could also like send a probe droid out or something, and then、uh, that's like not very—that's kind of tiny and not very visible—and then watch them. Kind of like a stalker, but <laughs> I guess. Well, I think because. Like to examine their bones, like because their knees face backwards. Maybe it's like also they like feel vulnerable. Maybe if they like sit on the ground or something. Okay, so maybe scientists go into bat caves and、uh, watch them, or just like ask them how they're feeling. Like, are you feeling vulnerable today, little bat? Yeah, I'm feeling pretty vulnerable. <laughs> well, we just so happen to live in the bat capital of the world, Austin, Texas. So I didn't have to go too far to find the answer at the headquarters of Bat Conservation International. Where the headquarters like a cave where they all like hanging upside down and sleeping <laughs> during the day <laughs> when you came in. It was disappointingly not a cave. It was a really normal office building. Did they, did they at least have like Transylvanian accents where they were like, "Welcome to our lab." <laughs> <laughs> no, this scientist had an Australian accent because she's. Australian. I met Michaela Jemison, a bat scientist and communications manager for Bat Conservation International. Sorry to keep you waiting.、Oh, okay, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Come upstairs. I'm afraid there's always a bat emergency somewhere. <laughs> What kinds of bat emergencies? Oh, people usually. I had so a bat might call from inside its cave, being like, "There's some people in the cave. <laughs> I think they want to study me. I don't know what they're here for." She took me into a small room that kind of looked like a kid's office. Oh, great puzzles! So I'd sent Michaela the recording of the question before I came in to talk to her. Kids that you interviewed, man, you found some smart ones. I was a little bit taken aback. I was like, "Geez, these guys already know half the answer to it." <laughs> I was really curious because I don't know the answer at all. If their theories were correct, they're definitely on the right track. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's get to talking about it. So the question is, why do bats hang upside down? So bats hang upside down for a couple of reasons. First reason is how they evolved with flying. Bats evolved about fifty million years ago from squirrel-like ancestors, and they started off, you know, mainly gliding. So having a, a thin membrane between their forelimbs and their back limbs, and then eventually they evolved wings. Bats have their membrane part of the wing between both their forelimbs and their back legs, so their wings are attached to their back legs, and many of them. So that means that it is quite difficult for them to be on the ground. So being upside down means that they're away from predators, and that's particularly one reason why they hang upside down in caves and in trees because it's very difficult for predators to get to them. It is to protect them from feeling vulnerable. Yeah. Like one of the kids said in the question. Yeah, yeah, they were completely right. It, it's it's a way that they can be out of reach of many predators,、um, and it's also a way that they can escape quite quickly. So for bats, they don't have much strength in their their lower limbs because they're very thin bones to you know make them light and able to fly. So that means they have you know real struggles pushing off and being able to take off flight from a stationary position. So when they're hanging upside down, they can just Drop 
And so having that extra space to drop and then reach out their wings, it enables them to take off a lot quicker. Okay, so hanging upside down is just really convenient for bats. Yeah, their bodies have evolved and adapted to it. And you know how Kara mentioned that bats' knees face the opposite way from ours? Yeah. It's true, and it also helps them hang upside down. Their feet are able to clench onto the tree or onto a cave and not actually have to expend any energy in terms of gripping. So when you and I have to grip onto something, you know, we have to physically think about it and we have to extend some energy. It's the opposite in bats. When they're at rest, their natural uh, tendons are gripping. They actually have to... um, extend energy to let go so that's how you know bats when they're asleep they don't suddenly fall off the roof of the cave okay so it's like in you know our natural position is for our palms to be open but their natural position is to be clenched around something yes that's exactly right that's so cool (laughs) i had no idea (laughs) so i'm keeping my fist clenched from now on just so i can be more (laughs) bat-like wait on that You might not have to because, listen to this, not all bats evolved to hang upside down. There are some bat species that uh, actually face what we would say if the right ray up. Um, These are actual uh, what we call sucker-footed bats. Sucker-footed? Yeah, so these ones actually have little sucker sucker pads on their wrists and on their ankles. And so what they do is they use these pads, they actually roost in rolled-up leaves, and they use their little suckers. And instead of what saying sucker, it actually they put a little bit of uh, moisture on their sucker pads and they stick to the leaves. And so instead of you know having face down towards the ground, they actually have face up towards the light because that's the way that they would have to escape if anything came across where they were roosting. And so they just like lick one wrist and then another and then stick them onto a plant. I love the idea of them curled up in little leaves. It's so cute. Little bat burritos. <laughs> yes. Don't order that at Chipotle. But so how do scientists know all this stuff that they know about bats? That's a really good question. The kids had a bunch of um, ideas about how you would find out Mm -hmm. about what bats do. Mm -hmm. How would you sort of summarize the type of research that happens? What are scientists looking for? And how long do they have to look at bats to make a conclusion that this is what happens? Scientists, um, we do a number of things. There are ecologists. Um, So like myself, where we go out and we study bats in their natural habitat and learn from what they're doing, learn from their behavior. So, you know, one of your uh, kids said probing, you know, maybe setting up cameras. We often put up infrared cameras and watch what they're doing. Do you consider yourself a stalker when you do that? (laughs) Well, no, I don't know about a stalker, maybe just a, a, a friendly observer. That's, that, that's but the bats there. didn't ask you to go there. <laughs> that's true. They don't know that you're outside looking at them. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very true. But you know what? You know, bats are always, uh, you'd be surprised that how many bats are flying around your house and you don't know that they're looking at you. So um, not that they're all that interested in us. Unfortunately, we're not a tasty bug. But um, I think it goes both ways. It sounds like stalker behavior to me. It's for science. 
there are scientists who put bats into wind tunnels and looking at how they fly by putting sensors on their wings and how the different movements of the wings um, enable them to fly in different ways. Um, there is uh, so many genetic studies going on right now because bats are uh, an animal, a group of animals that we know very little about. You know, the second largest group of mammals in the world are bats. Which you know, when you think about it, what? <laughs> yeah. You, so every so, if you were to have like all the mammals in the world, one in four would be a bat. So there's a lot of bats, and there's a lot that we still don't know about bats. I would have thought that we found out everything. Like they can turn into smoke. If you become the lord of the bats, you can control them and have them do your bidding. I mean, these are just facts. (laughs) I mean, Marshall, we know the basics. (laughs) But bats are still mysterious creatures in many ways. And there's a really good reason to find out more about them. Well, because first of all, they're cool. And you want to be the lord of the bats. You need to know how they work. You need to study them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But we want to help protect them. And also, if we understand their techniques... It can help humans get better at moving through the air, like building better aircraft. Oh, please. I want to have a plane that looks like a bat. (laughs) Stay bat plane. One last thing I can't resist sharing from my interview with Michaela. She told me that scientists are studying bat movement in a way that I'm kind of surprised fifth graders didn't come up with. What's that? Putting them on a treadmill. (laughs) I have to ask, how do you get a bat to walk on a treadmill? <laughs> well, you know what? I'm not exactly sure how they managed it. And if someone could tell me, I'd really love to know. Because most bats I've come across would not be that keen to be on a treadmill. Do you think the bats are all like, I'm doing two miles today? <laughs> <laughs> they have little sweatbands supplied <laughs> by the scientists. Like, oh, thanks. <laughs> The point is, there is no idea too crazy when it comes to studying bats, and scientists get really creative to find out what they want to know. Do you think Under Armour makes bat shirts? <laughs> it would be so hard to make a shirt for a bat if you think about it. Yeah, you'd have to get it over their wings. I mean, I guess you and could do their a tank wings top. are attached to their legs. You'll have to have like a stretchy tank top. So maybe this is a listener contest we could have: is design a bat shirt. Yes, we want to see your pictures of what a bat shirt would look like. Yeah. All right. And how to get over their heads (laughs) and their wings through. (laughs) All right. That's our show. Uh, Many thanks to Kara, Jack, and Jacob for your great science questions. Uh, You'll be hearing more from them and their classmates at St. Andrew's Episcopal School in Austin in future episodes. Thanks to Ms. Ballin for introducing us to the kids and facilitating our questions. And Michaela Jemison, a.k.a. the Bat Stalker, at Bat Conservation International. I'm Lindsay Patterson, and I produce this show. And I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I do the music and mixing. Sarah Lentz is our associate producer. Ashley Cox is our social media and newsletter guru. And tune in next time for more stories of science discovery. Hello. Since you guys are back, that must mean that this winter road trip is all over. I hope you enjoyed it. I know the sheep here really love learning about whale sharks, so that's pretty cool. Anyway, have a great rest of your holiday season, and we'll be back with more brand new episodes of Tumble on January...